The title of today's message is The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial, Part 11. It was given during the morning service on March 26, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. As our note sheet says, for those in the auditorium, this series is called The Love of Christ, topical series, though it is verse by verse, phrase by phrase at the end of Titus 2. Titus is one of the three books that teach us how a local church is to operate. As you should know, as I've mentioned in my other series on Sunday mornings from 1 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are the three books known as the pastoral or church epistles, letters written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, and to Titus. The recipient of this letter is the name of this book, Titus, one of the disciples of the Apostle Paul. And I've taken us deep into the middle of Titus 2, not to talk about how a church is to be, but he brings up the issue of grace in verse 11 of Titus 2 and the issue of godliness and what it looks like when a Christian in a local church is truly saved and godly. What are the evidences of that? We're saved by grace through faith alone. But the Bible says that we must look for evidences of transformation to legitimize and to prove that our conversion is real. It is possible to pray a prayer to be saved, and it is not genuine. It is not real. It wasn't a submission of the heart by faith alone to Jesus Christ as Lord. So in numerous ways and in various passages, the writers of the New Testament, from Christ all the way through here to Apostle Paul into the book of Revelation and John, they instruct us to be warned. Not everyone who prays a prayer to be saved by faith is necessarily saved. So you need to double check your life to see if there are evidences of true conversion. The grace of God saves in verse 11 and transforms the believer inside their minds in verses 12 to 15. I call this the love of Christ series because it says the grace of God has appeared in Titus 2.11 and in chapter 3 of Titus, verse 4, the same type of verse, chapter 3, verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior, grace, in other words, and his love for mankind appeared, he repeats the concept. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared. Titus chapter 3, verse 4, His love for mankind has appeared. The love of Christ is the grace of God. It is Christ coming to die for our sins. The reason why the issue of salvation and godliness is not accepted in our culture is a fundamental and simple concept. The reason why over 36 years of ministry at this church, we've had people come and go under my pastoral tenure who have come in, sat, listened, and left, and not submitted to the Word of God and to these teachings, is because, like our culture, people come into a church like this over the years, and they don't accept the Bible as the Word of God. That's, that's essential. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You do not believe the Bible is God's Word and necessary for your life if you spend no time in it. If you spend no time in it, You're not saved. It is not spending time in the Bible saves you. It's the Bible is how 
we get saved. It's, it's the path. You, you find out about salvation only in the Bible. Christ and his salvation is mentioned only in the Bible. So if I reject the Bible, I can't be saved. Because why would I believe the message of salvation? Our culture rejects the Bible. think it's a joke. They laugh at it. So without the Bible, there is no comprehension of salvation. There is no salvation apart from the word of God. And without salvation, a person's going to hell. We would love to convince people. We would love to shake them. Grab them by the shoulders and shake them and make them believe. But that wouldn't be true conversion anyways. And stick a sword up against the neck of an unbeliever and say, believe in Jesus. And they'll say, yes, I believe. Anything to stop the sword. But that's not true conversion. So what Paul is dealing with here is grace bringing salvation in verse 11 to all men. But you see, unless I believe that verse 11 of chapter 2 is God's word to us, why would I submit to that? Right? So the Spirit of God has to open a depraved, sinful heart to believe that the Bible is God's word. That is essential. That's why the gathering of individuals in churches like ours is meant to be for those who at least are accepting the concept that the Bible is the Word of God. They may not submit to the Word of God, but they accept the concept because otherwise it's pointless to be in a church that teaches the Bible is the Word of God if I don't believe it. So the Bible assumes it's the Word of God, and so in verse 11, the Scriptures say the grace of God through Christ, has appeared through Christ, bringing salvation to all men. It's been offered to all men. All men must be saved, as the Bible says. All religious roads do not lead to heaven. In fact, the Bible is the only religious book on this planet that teaches that man is rotten and going to hell. All the other religious books say that man is good and can earn their way to heaven. Thus, only the Bible's the one that tells the truth, because man is not good. He can do good things, but he's rotten in his heart. He's filled with evil thoughts, selfish thoughts, lustful thoughts. So obviously we need salvation because the Bible points it out, and experience shows us that we're helpless, helpless to live godly. So he starts out in verse 11 saying salvation comes first, and in verse 12 he turns to believers, instructing us in verse 12. Us would be believers. He's talking to believers in the local church at Crete. And he's instructing us. God is, his word is instructing us. Notice instruction. To be trained from the word of God. That's what instruction is. Again, if I don't believe the Bible to save me, why would I believe the Bible that shows me how to be godly? Now notice verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and what? Godly in the present age. Present age is referring to the church. So you have some negative things. The Bible instructs us to do two things negatively. Deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts or desires. And then instructs us to do some righteous things, to live sensibly, righteously, and then internally be godly in the heart, is the idea in this present age. The marks of godliness are right there. Only for those that are saved in verse 11. Only those that are saved can be godly. So this is essential. So in your note sheet, Roman number one, the love of Christ shows forth all humans to all humans by offering salvation by grace alone. Grace simply means unmerited favor. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift that you receive. You can't earn it. Doing good will not get you to heaven. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not 
of works. The Bible says that. You can't work your way to heaven. It's offered by grace, unmerited favor. There's God offering something to us that we don't deserve, which is salvation from hell. Salvation, in verse 11, is referring to salvation from hell. Not salvation from a bad community, salvation from a bad boss, salvation from poor finances. Salvation there is referring to salvation from hell. Hell's forever. We only have a few decades on this planet to live, and it doesn't matter what our standing is on this planet, whether it's someone who's homeless and without any money who dies, or it's Bill Gates, a billionaire, without Christ they end up in the same place, which is hell. Again, our society is not worried about hell because it rejects the Bible. We are here because we believe, at least we assent to the idea, that the Bible is God's word. If I didn't believe in the Bible and somebody said to me, let's go to Bible, Eastside Bible Church so that I can, we can study the Bible, and if I didn't believe the Bible, I would say this back, why should I go there when I don't believe the Bible? That's really a very honest question, right? If I don't believe the Bible, why should I go there? Now, we could say, well, because maybe if you sit under the Bible, you'll hear something and you will come to believe the Bible. That's a good reason to come. So it's not like if you don't believe the Bible, you should never show up here, because you may hear something that will actually spark life within you. Let's not assume that all of us here have absolute knowledge. Just because I personally don't believe in something doesn't mean that I'm right. And I've had to tell people over the years, what would be my motive for standing up here for 36 years? Have I made a ton of money doing that? No. Is this like the ultimate career track that brings glory to my life? No. Why would I do this? Because I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I think I've got some experiential evidence behind that, that I've studied the Bible for 36 years, over 50,000 hours, and I've never found an error in it. I don't know any book like that. No contradictions. If there were, I wouldn't be up here. So you have to ask yourself a question. If you don't believe the Bible is God's word, what's driving a guy like me? And really, what I find is most people reject the Bible as the word of God just because that's their arrogant personal opinion without ever studying it themselves. And they don't want to be told that they're wrong. So they avoid the Bible because they've got better things to do with their lives. Please be warned. You don't know when your life will come to an end. And when it does, without Christ, rejecting the Christ of the Bible, you will end up in hell forever. Now is the time of salvation. Please be careful. Please make sure that you're saved now. Please give the Bible some credence. Please give the Bible some credit that it knows what it's talking about because God wrote it. That's why it is so important. There are no errors in it. It speaks exactly to our lives of being sinning, selfish, godless, narcissistic, only into what we want. How is that good? How does that make us moral? It doesn't. Jesus Christ is insulted by humanity that reject him and think that they don't need his salvation. Yes, we do. 
So first it brings salvation, the grace of God and Jesus Christ does, and then it starts us off in your note sheet with these marks of godliness in your note sheet. And mark number one is the godly believer loves Bible instruction. You wrote the question down at the beginning, how do I know that I'm godly? You're not godly if you don't love the Bible instruction of being taught by the Bible in churches or reading the Bible and studying it yourself. Then you are ungodly. A godly person loves to be instructed in the Word of God. Why? Because they're such sinners, they need help from God. And the only help you're going to get from God is in the Bible. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There is no other vehicle, no other way that you can find help from God, but through the Word of God. If faith comes through the Word of God, as Romans tells us, then there is no other way to be godly and grow in faith than through the Word of God. It is the doorway by which you achieve godliness. If you fundamentally reject the Bible, then you must at least have the honesty to say that according to the Bible, you are fundamentally ungodly without God. Mark number two in your note sheet. The godly believer loves fellowship in the body of Christ, especially to be instructed. That's the us gathering together. Instructing us together is the idea. Acts 2 tells us that, that they gathered the first new church believers in Jesus Christ, gathered together in local churches. So here's a second test for yourself. If you fundamentally do not see any point to gathering in a church to be taught the Bible, and you either do this because you're forced to, or do it because... You, it's just an empty habit, then you are fundamentally ungodly. Godliness is marked not by having to go to church, but by loving to come to a church that teaches the word of God. And then mark number three, and this is the one that really rubs against our culture wrong. Mark number three in your note sheet. Mark number three. And that's the one we're currently in. The godly believer denies ungodliness. Denies means to renounce, not to deny as if it's not true. That's that word in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness. An unfortunate translation, because our English word deny, as I've taught you many times, means to reject something as, or, or to consider it not to be true. Uh, somebody catches you stealing something. I deny it. I did not do it. That's not what the word denial means. It means to strongly renounce. The word deny there, our neamai, stands for the idea of repenting, turning from evil. Notice we're to deny ungodliness. We're to renounce ungodliness. I don't love the word. I'm ungodly. I need to repent of that. If I don't want to be in a church to be taught the Bible, I need to repent of that. That's what denial means in your note sheet. You can see it. Strongly renounce. So cross off the word deny in your English text if you're so inclined and write the word renounce. Or to renounce ungodliness. This is the purpose of being taught the Bible, is to confront ungodliness and lusts in a person's life, a Christian's life. That's why you're here. You're to be taught the word, instructing us towards this goal, to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. That's epithumia. Desires is lust. You walk in here, and everything in your mind and desires is wired towards ungodliness and lust. And the purpose of the word of God to be taught to you is to get you to renounce ungodliness and lusts. And our society loves to be ungodly. God means nothing. God is irrelevant to our society. The great judge of this world is coming back very soon. And you will find that as in the days of Noah, most humans will have completely ignored God. But when he appears in the sky and lands in Israel at the Mount of Olives. 
the second coming at the end of the tribulation. Then judgment will occur and there will be no escape. So Christ said, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to test yourself. So in your note seat, if you'll notice, it says the Bible, Bible teaching is primarily meant to confront sin in a believer's life. It's under mark number 3.2, letter A there. It's meant to confront sin. If you like only positive things in your religion, then you're not a Bible-believing Christian because the overwhelming purpose of Christianity is to confront negatively one's sin. So you're ungodly, number one, if you don't care much for Bible instruction or at all and you don't spend much time in the Bible yourself. You're ungodly, number two, if fellowship in a church is because I have to or occasionally just because it's like taking an antibiotic, I guess I'll do it. And you're ungodly. And number three, if you don't think yourself as being a sinner, essentially, without God and filled with lust, there is no hope for you at all to be saved from hell. None. So that's what teaching is supposed to do. So I'm supposed to obey, as a Bible instructor, I'm supposed to obey this primary mandate is to confront sin in your lives and in mine. That's what I'm called to do. You can understand if you don't think you're much of a sinner that this would grate at you, right? Imagine coming here for years and all I ever taught you was that bulldozers are evil. Bulldozers, you know what a bulldozer is, one of those earth movers. And all I ever did, sermon after sermon, was to tell you how bad bulldozers are in your life. You would tolerate it for a while, but then you'd come to the conclusion, this is nuts. I don't care about bulldozers. I don't follow bulldozers. I don't sit in bulldozers, and I certainly don't care about earth being moved by bulldozers. You'd eventually rear up and you'd look around the auditorium and say, not only is he nuts for talking about bulldozers, but every chump in this auditorium who sits under him is certifiable. And I'm getting out of here. These people are crazy. You see, if you're taught something as a priority that is not true in your life, you will get to the point you can hardly take it. And if you don't think you're a sinner going to hell, to constantly have it drummed at you how bad you are is such negativity that you feel like you want to vomit. Please, don't shoot the messenger. If you got a problem with what I'm saying, pick it up with the Bible. How about, if you think this is crazy this morning, you grab your copy of the Bible and point it up to God and say, you're nuts because you wrote this, which is nuts. I'm just passing on the message. Now, even when we trust and believe that the purpose of instruction is to deny ungodliness, we're tricky little devils. We squirm our way around us because we're sinners by nature, even as believers. And because we're sinners by nature, we try to get out from under this. We have a host of ways where we try to convince ourselves we're really not that bad even though we are sinners. Now the unique thing about verse 12 is that what the Spirit of God has done has connected Bible teaching to sin confrontation. This is extremely important. Bible teaching connected to sin confrontation in verse 12. See that? Instructing us towards the denial of ungodliness and worldly desires. This is the first place priority of teaching. 
So this creates a conflict. I can say I do see myself as a sinner, but I'm sick and tired of it getting confronted through teaching. It's very easy to get to that point. I know I'm a sinner. Ding, ding, ding. You don't have to keep telling me. Why does this need to keep being taught to me? Because the Bible says to do it. Why? Because sin is a far greater problem than we realize. Far greater problem than we realize. For instance, let's go back to the crazy bulldozer. Let's say you're sitting in this auditorium and you have a pile of dirt in this auditorium across this entire room that is growing and it's right now up to your chin and I start preaching to you about the value of getting somebody in here with a bulldozer to remove it. Now would bulldozers become practical? You're ready to go under the dirt and we need a bulldozer to remove it. The reason Christians can say very easily, I'm a terrible sinner, yeah, yeah, yaddy, yaddy. But can you please stop pounding me on instruction is because the person who has this attitude and doesn't want a lot of instruction confronting sin doesn't believe the sin is piling up in their lives. It is a minor pile of dust under the piano, not needing to continually be vacuumed. Wrong. Sin is your nemesis. Do you know what that word means? It is your ultimate enemy, and it is piling up the longer you're a Christian. And the really poisonous nature of sin is that as it gets worse, it convinces you that you're getting better. As sins pile up, you see them less and less. I was reading this week that a Hebrew medical university this past week has done something that no other medical research has done in the history of cancer research. They discovered the true foundation of what is causing the deadly cancer of pancreatic cancer. For years, cancer oncologists, medical researchers believed it was a DNA construct that was driving the pancreatic cancer, which is one of the most fatal. Esophageal and pancreatic cancer, pancreatic cancer are the ones that really kill you because they're asymptomatic until they're terminal. Only one out of ten people with pancreatic cancer at any stage, one through four, survive longer than a year. It's deadly. And it's deadly because nobody can see it until it's too late. That's what makes pancreatic and esophageal cancer so deadly. They discovered it is not a DNA sequence. It is an RNA sequence. And with this, there is hope. It took research and research and research to discover this. Sin is piling up on us, and the more we have sin, we become more asymptomatic. And it requires constant conflict with instruction to pry open and convict the heart of what sinners we are. This is a drastic problem. Can we really say that ungodliness and worldly desires in verse 12 are not that big a deal in our lives? When Jesus Christ had to take on a human form, come to earth, live 33 years, and be murdered on a cross because of your sin and mine. But it's really not that big of a deal. It's our own blindness that does that. It's piling up on us. And we need the bulldozer of the word of God continuously. That's why the word instructing there in verse 12 is the word paiduo. It means to train like a child. 
We're all children, and it means to be continuously instructed at church to deny ungodliness. This is never to end. So from God's point of view, he's looking at us, and he's seeing the sin piling up. And the more it piles up, the less you see, and the less I see. We become hardened toward it. It becomes deadly. It becomes asymptomatic as it is rotting you out and killing you. And it's the lack of desire for teaching the word and for repentance that are evidences that I'm terminal. So of the first three marks, mark number one, loving Bible instruction, you're godly. Mark number two, love fellowship with believers. And number three, renouncing ungodliness and worldly desires. Mark number three is essentially the number one. It is the number one. You are so evil and I am so evil and so rotten in our minds, so overcome with sin that the Bible says you need to be continually instructed. So I've been giving you some essentials concerning this. Facts to consider in your note sheet. Eight essential facts that connect instruction to sin denial. And what these facts prove is whether you really believe you're as bad as they say you are and I am as bad as I say that I am. Fact number one. If a believer can't win against sin at all, Bible instruction should stop. You understand that it's a waste of time, in verse 12, to be taught the Bible to confront your ungodliness and worldly desires if you have no hope of winning. If as a born-again Christian you will never have victory over sin, there is no point for you to be taught the Bible. The whole point of fact number one is the fact that the Bible says you need to be instructed to deny godliness, that means there is an, a capability to do that. And it works through instruction. Power works through instruction to deny godliness. That's why we have to be in churches that teach us we're terrible sinners and properly instruct us in the word or there's no hope. The fact that it says right there we need to continuously be instructed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires means we can win. If I believe I can't win against sin and that it's hopeless, you and I are deluded. We're believing a lie. Fact number two that we've seen, if a believer does not need to win against sin, then all Bible instruction should stop. Is this really optional? I mean, you know what's optional for me this afternoon? Whether I'm going to ride a bike or not. I can tell you I'm not going to ride a bike unless a gun's put to my head. But it's optional. If I choose to ride a bike this afternoon or don't ride a bike, is it going to do anything to better my life morally? No. There are Christians who believe this instruction is if I've got nothing better to do, I'll go to church and be taught the word of God. Because ungodliness and worldly desires really are nothing more than riding a bike. Yeah, they're in my life, but they're no big deal, and I can take or leave it concerning instruction. If you don't need this absolutely, then you really shouldn't be sitting under Bible instruction. Fact number three. A believer is in a power encounter when sitting under Bible instruction. You see the power encounter, don't you? Your sin is here, right here in your mind. And the Bible calls it the lust of the flesh. And it's fighting a war to capture your life. And what instruction is, is pounding. Pounding on that. And this is a power encounter. The Spirit works through instruction to pry this open to get you to repent. Wants you to arneamai there to renounce it. But we harden with it. And we resist then we hate the instruction, then we hate the instructor. This is a power encounter. There is massive power going on right now in this 
room and it has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. When I think of charismatics, I think, how sad. They think that the, the, the ultimate manifestation of divine power is speaking in tongues. No, it's not. The ultimate power encounter is right in verse 12. The Spirit of God is trying to pry open your mind with truth to get you to repent. That's the ultimate power encounter. You and I fighting Bible teaching. And we do it by ignoring it. Fact number four. A believer chooses to use or abuse Bible instruction when he sits under Bible instruction. The interesting thing about this power encounter is miraculous divine power working through instruction to get you to repent of your sin. And what's amazing is God, who is infinitely more powerful than you, he will let you close down and ignore that Bible teaching. He will let you do that. He will turn off the tap of his power through instruction by a will that is unwilling to submit. He sees that unwillingness and he will stop convicting. You want to know right now whether the Spirit of God has closed off in your life the working of the power of God through instruction. Here it is so simple. Are you ready? Brace for impact. The primary evidence that the Spirit of God has had enough of you and me and has stopped the power encounter is when you no longer feel convicted. That's it. Does that make you more powerful than God? No. I have a rule. My kids know it. My wife knows this and it irritates them, I'm sure, because the rule irritates myself as well at times. If you interrupt me while I'm talking, I just stop in mid-sentence. Am I right, girls? That rule? And, right? So if I'm talking and all of a sudden you interrupt me, I just, like let's say I'm talking right now, and I just, you know, just, and what's wrong, Dad? What's wrong, John? Nothing's wrong. If you interrupt me, I stop talking. This interrupts divine power. This. See. No one makes me stop talking. When they interrupt me, I could keep talking, right? I could. I choose to stop talking when I'm interrupted. Then I get a little smile inside my mind. <laughs> that showed them. Right in mid-syllable, I stop talking. I have the choice to stop talking if you interrupt me. The Spirit of God looks at us through Bible instruction, and, and as Paul told the Corinthians, be wide open. Be wide open in your will to the Word of God. And when you close down like this, that interrupts the power flow. It's over! And the evidence that we have interrupted the power flow is lack of guilt over sin through Bible instruction. That's how we abuse Bible instruction. In case you're wondering, fact number four, the bottom of your note sheet there, fact number four, how do you know you're abusing it? If you're a Bible instruction abuser, you have closed down conviction. You sit and listen and leave and you get nothing out of it. You're abusing the word of God. You see, the instruction is supposed to get you to deny and to renounce ungodliness. It's supposed to, how, do you, how does Bible instruction get you to renounce ungodliness? Creating massive guilt. So guilt is good. Guilt is a real good thing. If it's driven by the word of God, not false guilt. Okay. Guilt is a good thing. And the more I resist this instruction of the word of God to confront my sin, I'm closing down the guilt mechanism. When I do that, 1 Thessalonians 5 says that's the quenching of the Spirit. 
How do you quench infinite God? How do you put the fire of the Spirit out? You put the fire of the Spirit out when you close down on conviction, harden up, just sit like a zombie under the truth of the Word of God. There is no power there because the Spirit of God has been quenched and shuts off conviction. That's a sign that I'm under the judgment of God. I wished everyone in this auditorium would accept that truth. No conviction means you're under the judgment of God. Lack of power is not God's fault. Lack of power of conviction is my fault for not feeling guilty when his holy word confronts my sin. Fact number five, a godly believer longs for sin-confronting Bible instruction. You know you're godly if you want this all the time. It's very rare. You say, what's, what's rare, John? Rarer than gold. How many times have I heard someone, even in our own church, come up and say, just preach more against my sin, more against my sin, more against my sin. You're not doing it enough. I need sin confrontation, sin confrontation. I could probably count on one time, one hand, how many professed believers over the years have come up and said that to me. Very rare. Listen. The more godly you are, the more you see your sin. The more you see your sin, the more you realize how helpless you are to deal with it. Because it's everywhere up there, even as Christians. You didn't lose your sin nature when you got saved. And as a godly Christian, the more you see your sin, the more you're convicted of it and, and confused by it. And the more you need someone to teach me the word to pierce the darkness. Only the godly believer, fact number five, longs. For sin-confronting Bible instruction, which means there are very few godly believers in our world today, even sitting in churches. Because there comes a point when most believers say, enough is enough. And the minute you say enough is enough to sin-confronting teaching, you have just testified to the Spirit of God that you fundamentally are not that bad in the area of sin. I've had enough. Let me close with two great quotes by two men of God. These are long and old quotes. You can shut it off right now and close your Bible and not listen. I read these and they devastated me, personally and privately. Quote number one. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Keep your conscience tender and flee the first motion and occasion of sin. Do not think of sin as a little thing and do not take mercy for granted. Do not trust in your own strength and do not trust in light repentance. Do you know what light repentance is? Oh, we've all done it. Uh, I feel a little guilt. Oh, sorry, Jesus. Sorry. Amen. Yeah, that's not, that's not real repentance. He continues, True repentance flees further stumblings. Remember that yielding to sin increases its power to rise higher. Every time the bone is broken, the mending is more difficult and the limp more pronounced. Do you know what he's saying? You and I are running out of time with your repeated sins in mind. The more you keep sinning without repenting, the more broken you become and the harder it is to find restoration. 
Sin not only breaks you, but it hardens you and it scars you against conviction. Quote number two. Indwelling sin is described as a law because of its power. It has lost its complete dominion in believers, but even in them it is still a law. This law of sin offers rewards and punishments. The pleasures of sin are its rewards. And most men lose their souls to obtain those pleasures. The sorry reward of sin keeps the world in obedience to its commands. And experience shows its power and influence on the minds of men. This tyrant called sin maintains a rebellion against God all our days. Sometimes it has more strength and consequently more success. And sometimes it has less strength, but is always in rebellion while we live. It is like an enemy in war, sin is, whose strength and power lies not only in the numbers, but also in the unconquerable fort that it possesses. The more men exert and put forth the fruit of their lusts, the more their lusts are enraged and increased. For sin feeds upon itself and swallows up its own poison and grows by itself. The more men sin, the more men are inclined to sin. This law of sin is deceitful. Do you think you can satisfy a lust so that you need not do it anymore? Every sin increases the principle and fortifies the habit of sin. It is an evil treasure that increases by doing evil. Can't we see that in society? Evil propagates evil. Those of you that you're young, you have no idea how much more moral this society was outwardly. Things you could never imagine on television today or in the internet that is tolerated would have been allowed 50 years ago. Elvis Presley was arrested in the 1950s for gyrating his hips that looked like a sexual act. Now you can turn on any streaming service and see the entire act to its completion. Is that progress? There's never been a decadent society yet that survived. You know what decadence is? Giving over to our base desires and vice. Sex, drugs, violence, hate, gluttony. This is a noble society we're living in? When my grandparents and Sue's grandparents were young, they could travel to the lakefront on hot summer days, and by the hundreds, they could sleep on the beaches of Chicago. Now how many bolts and chains do you need on your doors to stop the crime? And we're better? That's what this man is saying. Sin just feeds itself. We're cannibalizing ourselves while we play with our sin and think it's no big deal. And guys like me are considered nuts. He finishes off this quote from 300 years ago. Never let us reckon that our work in fighting against sin is at an end. Did you hear that? You think you've conquered sin, folks? You don't need to repent so much, don't need the word so much, don't need to be instructed so much. Not feeling that conviction anymore. Here's the essential answer to your question then. How do you know if you're godly? If you are completely and regularly feeling guilt over your multitude of sins, you are godly. If you are hardened and don't see yourself as much of a sinner anymore, then you have become ungodly. It is necessary to watch to the end of your life the race and fight against sin.
Always be watching while you live in this world. Great ground is obtained when the work is vigorously and constantly carried on. Sin is greatly weakened and the mind presses forward into growing perfection. But the war against sin must be endless. If we give over, we shall quickly see this enemy exerting itself with new strength and vigor. Grace empowerment is increased by its exercise. The more believers exercise the grace of obedience to God's word, the more obedience of holiness is strengthened. He who dies fighting against sin and for holiness wins the day and will assuredly die a conqueror. Did you catch that? He who dies fighting against sin dies a conqueror. Sad and tragic picture is of Christians. The longer they live, the less they fight, the quicker they die in their sins. Such wise words from a man who wrote them 300 years ago. He who dies fighting against sin and for holiness wins the day and will assuredly die a conqueror. I can say before you that I have not won all the battles against sin in my life. I have failed more times than I can count by choosing the path of sin. But I can also say this, I want to die fighting. I don't want to go quietly into the night. I want to die fighting sin. Some here in this auditorium, you don't even know that you're a sinner. You're so corrupted by the cancer of sin, you can't even see it. And you assume, because you can't see it, that guys like me are extreme. Please put your eyes into verse 12 one last time before we leave. The Bible, God's holy word, says you need to be continuously instructed to confront sin in your life. Your greatest enemy you will ever face is not the carjacker. It's not the lying fiend of a politician who's trying to become mayor. It's not a mentally incompetent president that is your enemy. Nor a gangbanger. Nor a drug dealer. Nor a violent neighbor. Your greatest enemy is you. You're the one that chooses to go to hell or not. And so am I. Father, thank you for your word. It is, as always, meant to convict and to confront. And if we're not convict convicted by your word, we are not godly. Oh, that the guilt would increase. The repentance would be longer and deeper. And the heart would be soft and not cold. So we learned in Sunday school, Lord, there may never be a revival in the church today. There's no evidence of it in the scriptures. But may at least it come personally in a remnant of believers who love Bible teaching for this supreme reason and this alone to have the horrors of their sin bludgeoned and attacked and confronted because we are so prone to wander, Lord, and so love our sin. If somebody doesn't have the courage to attack it through Bible instruction, how can we ever have victory over our sins? Faith, Lord, comes by, by the word of God, yes.
Victory comes by the word of God. Yielding to it. What a power encounter we're in, Lord. May your power win the day. May we fight against sin to our last dying breath and may we not go quietly into the night yielding in hardness of heart towards the idolatries of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.